I didn't have high expectations for this carbon plan, but the, even I was disappointed with what Duke filed, given the changes we've had in terms of money just poured into the system to support clean energy deployment. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 98th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, Duke Energy files their proposal for the next iteration of the Carbon Plan, also known as the CPIRP, a combined carbon plan and integrated resource planning process. We're joined by three experts who break down what was in the utility's preferred pathway and what that would mean for the electricity sector moving forward. But before that conversation, a few short updates. We're just over two months away now from NCSEA's Making Energy Work Conference, which will be held November 2nd and 3rd in Raleigh. This is the conference to learn about all the latest policy updates taking place within the Southeast, while catching up with industry leaders from across the region. Sponsorship opportunities are still available and registration is now open. For more information, visit makingenergywork.com. Support for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast comes from Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage, available to Triangle area homeowners, businesses, and nonprofit organizations. More information, along with free evaluation appointments, through September 30th can be found at solarizethetriangle.com. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our first guest on the podcast is the president of the Southeastern Wind Coalition, a nonprofit dedicated to advancing wind power in the Southeast through outreach and education. Since 2015, she has managed SCWC's programming across 11 states, working with a wide variety of stakeholders to promote land-based, offshore, and imported wind power. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Catherine Collins to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Catherine, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much, Matt. Happy to be here. Our next guest on the podcast is Senior VP for Regulatory and Government Affairs at Pinegate Renewables and is a solar industry veteran and nationally respected authority on energy policy. In addition to leading Pinegate's policy team, our guest devotes much of his time to expanding the offtake opportunities for independently owned solar generation resources through competitive procurement program design voluntary customer programs, PERPA implementation, and market reform. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Steve Levitis to the podcast. Steve, welcome on. Good to be here, Matt. And our next guest is the Southeast Deputy Director for the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. In this role, our guest leads the Sierra Club's power sector work in the Carolinas, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. Prior to his six years with the Sierra Club, our guest was the Director of Environment North Carolina. Dave Rogers, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, uh, thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. All right. So diving right into this, we'll start with Dave here. At a high level, can you tell us a little bit more about what was proposed by Duke in their most recent CPIRP filing with the North Carolina Utilities Commission that we just saw a few weeks ago? Yeah, so I think the big thing to note is that Duke proposed three main scenarios. They refer to them as pathways in the plan. Pathway one, which complies with the 70% CO2 reductions by 2030. Pathway two, which complies by 2033. And pathway three, which doesn't comply until 2035. And really the biggest difference between those scenarios is the timing of the reductions. It's mostly driven by a few key parts of each pathway or plan related to generation resources. So how fast do we retire the existing coal fleet? 
how much and how quickly we deploy clean energy resources like solar, wind, and battery storage, how much new gas is allowed on the system, and whether or not it makes sense to wait around for new nuclear technology before complying with the carbon reduction mandates. Um, Duke's recommended pathway three, which wouldn't reach uh, the 70% emission reductions until 2035, and they've recommended that as their preferred plan. And to be blunt, it really just represents a big step backwards for customers, the climate, and public health across the state, uh, particularly when compared to even the last plan. It's really just disappointing, uh, given that Duke actually needed to move more quickly than what they proposed in the 2022 carbon plan. And this actually represents um, slowing down even uh, their own previous uh, recommendations. Taking a step back here, uh, why why do you think we're seeing this this slow roll or this this moving to a, a further timeline uh, from the, the previous iteration of the carbon plan to this iteration? Yeah, I think one of the things related to that and one of the things that really kind of stands out in the Duke's proposal is uh, increased load forecast and an increased uh, reserve margin. So Duke is projecting a significant increase in the amount of generation they need to provide, largely due to increase in manufacturing that they're projecting over the next decade plus. And they are requesting an increase in the winter reserve margin, which is currently 17% up to 22%. So I assume most of your listeners are aware of what the reserve margin is, but essentially it's the amount of extra capacity that the system has in case something goes wrong or we have, you know, something like Winter Storm Elliott happen again. That's a somewhat of a kind of, of a fudge factor to make sure if something does go wrong, that the lights can still be on. And so I think those are the big things that are kind of driving these decisions, but it's really unfortunate given in light of the Inflation Reduction Act, which didn't exist in the last plan, that Duke is actually moving more slowly to deploy the resources that the Inflation Reduction Act was really driving them to deploy. So from a naive perspective and and maybe at at risk of taking us down a a quick rabbit hole here, I've got to imagine, I mean, not much seemingly has has changed in the past year and a half, especially with North Carolina's growth population increase. Why did we not see these same sort of proposals in the last carbon plan for, for load growth over the next 10 to 15 years? And what's changed between this plan and the last plan? Yeah, I mean, that'd be a good question for the folks at Duke, for sure. You know, I think there has been an increase across the Southeast in announcements related to to manufacturing, whether it's new battery plants, solar, you know, solar production facilities, electric vehicles, production, etc. So there, you know, I think that is a reality, but it's worth noting that a lot of that hasn't come on yet, and it's unclear totally what how those are going to impact load. And then the other thing that I w- would note is that a lot of those manufacturers are largely interested in clean energy and want to procure 100% clean energy to meet their needs. And this plan really takes a different path with that. And then the last thing I would note related is that one of the things that's really disappointing about this plan is it really doesn't do much to um, shrink the challenges Duke likes to uh, refer to it as by relying more on energy efficiency, um, demand reduction, particularly at those winter peaks, t- which are some of the least cost resources we could deploy that would allow us to meet the goals more easily and more affordably. Yeah, and I was just I was just going to underscore a point that Dave made. It is ironic that the the big change from the last plan is this significant increase in projected manufacturing growth. And by that, I include all forms of commercial industrial activity, not just manufacturing. And to Dave's point, there's so many of these companies that are just not coming here if the message is this is a place that's going to keep operating coal longer than many other states and not make more renewables available. So, um, you know, it's just kind of self-defeating. I don't think Dave mentioned also, there's a significant change in the EV penetration assumption that's also driving that load growth. And and may be correct. I'm I'm not an expert. I like my electric car, but I'm not sure what 
uh, a reasonable expectation is for the Carolinas. And, you know, and I think both of you bring up a good point about all of the, the manufacturing announcements that we've seen here within the region, especially all of the manufacturing announcements we've seen related to clean energy. But what we don't often hear about are the the companies that elect to move elsewhere because they don't have the clean energy resources available to them to meet their goals here within the state. I mean, there were reports within the past couple of years that companies like Rivian have elected to move to other states because clean energy there wasn't enough clean energy resources online here in North Carolina. So let's let's dive in a little bit more to to the clean energy proposals uh, from Duke as part of the their own proposal overall, Steve. And, and particularly thinking about the the solar piece and their preferred third scenario, the overall six gigawatt number proposed is is higher than the total approved in the last commission ordered carbon plan. But would that number significantly accelerate solar deployments in the near term here in North Carolina? First thing I would say is that it's hard to figure out what's going on in this document with respect to solar because the numbers are kind of all over the lot. So if you look at pathway three, Duke's preferred pathway, it's only showing 4.1 gigawatts of solar coming on by the beginning of 2030. But then if you move over to chapter four, which is the near-term execution plan, they're showing six gigawatts of solar coming on by the uh, beginning of 2031. So there's a 1900 megawatt difference between those two numbers. It's hard to account for since they don't show 1900 megawatts of solar being added in, in any single year. And then if you also look at the the numbers or what they're showing of annual additions within the near-term execution plan, they don't match up with the numbers that they have in chapter two with respect to solar additions. So there's just some questions that they have to answer about what's going on here. It's also unclear to what extent in any of these numbers they count procurements that have already been initiated. So under the 2022 procurement, as they note in the plan, they've contracted for, I believe it's 965 megawatts, uh, and they have another procurement out now that's just getting started for 1,435 megawatts of solar. And it's just unclear exactly how those numbers are accounted for. But the most important thing to say about solar in this plan is the same problem that so many interveners pointed out in the last carbon plan proceeding, which is that you know, solar is the most established least cost resource that's available to them. And what they do in these documents is artificially constrain the amount of solar that can be added to their system. Their models would select dramatically more solar as the least cost solution for ratepayers, but for the fact that they put an artificial constraint on how much can be added each year. And what's that showing in the near term? I believe it's 1,350 megawatts. It goes up by 2031 to 1575. And in the last carbon plan, it's a number that doesn't show up much in here. I think it's in one of their uh, alternative scenarios. Duke presented a stretch case, which was supported by the solar industry of 1800 megawatts a year. So they haven't really considered that. And you know, the thing that I would say is that if you don't try to interconnect more then by definition, you're not going to do it. So the, the only way to test the limits of their ability to interconnect solar, the least cost resource, is to procure more of it and, and do the best they can and try to do a better job. You know, this whole plan, the linchpin of this plan, the heart and soul of this plan is new nuclear technology that doesn't exist today. And somehow Duke believes that it and the nuclear industry have the technological wherewithal to have these major breakthroughs and to develop technology, complicated technology that doesn't exist. And yet they can't figure out how to deal with something that they've been dealing with for decades, which is interconnection of generation resources to their system. So they need to be trying harder. The commissions need to be pushing them harder to interconnect more of the least cost resource. And the last thing I'll say on this at least for now, is that one of the encouraging things about the plan is that Duke is continuing its commitment, this is a new thing, to proactive transmission planning. And a significant amount of new transmission was approved in connection with the last plan. There's more that they're proposing that's being studied by the Transmission Planning Collaborative. And this is a game changer. You know, when you start thinking about proactively building out significant improvements to the transmission grid, it should make it dramatically easier to connect resources than when you're doing all your transmission in response to interconnection requests from generators. So we think they can do a lot better, and we want to see the commissions push them to try to do a lot better. 
you answered a lot of the follow-up questions that I was going to ask that are related to transmission and then also putting uh, the, the thumb on the scales weighing towards utility-owned generation. So I'll, I'll skip some of those follow-up questions and, and shift gears a little bit to a different renewable technology and, and talking about wind. So Catherine, in the last carbon plan order, the, the commission ordered Duke to conduct a stakeholder process prior to this carbon plan proceeding to determine a viable path for onshore wind in the state. Can you tell us a little bit more about that stakeholder process and how that translated into the most recent proposal from Duke? Yeah, happy to share what I can. I'll say the Southeastern Wind Coalition has had one conversation with with the folks at Duke about this stakeholder process. From my understanding, the stakeholder process was targeted primarily to independent land-based wind developers. And I believe that the commission's primary concern was the timeline. The timeline with which, because we have no currently permitted or projects in the permitting pipeline in North Carolina for land-based wind and figuring out, well, if we're not even sure what these very initial projects might look like, how can we expect to have a fully developed producing project by 2030? The findings from that stakeholder plan have not been explicitly released. And so my assumption is based on the portfolios that Duke proposes that they showed a timeline that would allow for onshore wind um, at a very small scale, about 300 megawatts, to be produced in the 2030 timeframe. I think that that is likely a realistic assumption. Um, If the market signals are placed as soon as possible. And that's one of of the issues we've seen with land-based wind in the Carolinas over the last decade is that the market signals have not been in place in the Carolinas, in the Duke Energy Territory. We have seen some market signals in the PJM Territory up in the Northeast of North Carolina, where we've got one project in service and another coming online. But given that, that we have no current pipeline, 300 megawatts in 2030, and then As we move toward 2038, those assumptions go up to 2.3 gigawatts. You know, I would be very curious to see what independent power producers, those land-based wind developers would say about the likelihood of being able to develop that much land-based wind. It seems very aggressive to, to me, given the siting challenges that we've had in the Carolinas with military and just given the, the population density across the Carolinas. Siting wind is not something that's an easy prospect. So, so taking a, a step back, what did we see from Duke overall in their preferred scenario three related to onshore and offshore wind in, in terms of total additions and timing? So in scenario three, what we saw for onshore wind um, was 1.2 gigawatts coming on by 2033. Again, I think those are fairly aggressive numbers. In the last carbon plan, we saw 600 megawatts, so about half that amount, which I think is probably a more realistic expectation over the next decade or so for land-based wind. With offshore wind, what we saw in the preferred scenario was no wind, no offshore wind. And that is certainly a disappointing outcome from the modeling. Where you do see offshore wind come in is in the first portfolio, where we do reduce carbon emissions by 70% by 2030. That was what the original legislation had intended. And when we do push for those carbon emissions sooner rather than later, what you see is those technologies that are here and now, solar offshore wind, those are the technologies that are going to get us to the carbon reductions that we need to be at. And offshore wind is a technology that is incredibly complementary to the solar resource in the Carolinas. It has a winter morning peak, a summer afternoon peak, and can produce electricity when solar isn't necessarily generating. So talking about that first portfolio there, how do those offshore wind additions proposed by Duke stack up against the capacity in the leasing areas off the coast of North Carolina? Yeah, off the coast of North Carolina, we've got three offshore wind energy areas that are already leased to developers. Those developers are actively permitting and the 
project that's furthest along the Kitty Hawk Wind Energy area that is leased by Avangrid, they would be able to start production um, in the late 2020s. So certainly an achievable technology by 2030. What Duke has said is that transmission is the biggest roadblock to, to actually bringing that offshore wind on in the near term. And much as um, my colleagues have noted transmission planning and certainly proactive transmission planning for offshore wind is going to be key if we are going to bring this resource on and obtain the carbon emissions reductions that we are seeking. And not to necessarily pit generation technologies against one another, and I'd be happy to to toss this question to, to others as well, but the timing of those additions, how does that stack up against what Duke is proposing for things like SMRs in the state? And is the timing that they're proposing realistic? Yeah, my read of the proposal is that if we are looking at generating technology that is here and now that we understand where we know, you know, with offshore wind, we have 50 gigawatts of offshore wind, over 50 gigawatts of offshore wind installed worldwide. Now in the U.S., you know, we talk about permitting timelines. In the U.S., federal offshore wind leases so far have taken in the neighborhood of 10 years to go from permitting to production. And so when we think about these new technologies, things like SMRs or hydrogen, where we don't have any current production in the U.S., let alone in the world, I think that having a scenario where we are making an assumption that those timelines are going to be that certain and then not building offshore wind or other generating technologies that are certain can put us in in a predicament that we very likely do not want to be in in 2035. Because in 2035, if we cannot produce SMRs the way that we are predicting right now, it will be too late to try to very quickly bring on these other generating technologies. And I think that we're going to find ourselves in a scenario where we push carbon emissions off further and further and further every year. It's important for us all to think, including the commission, the public, obviously advocates of the goal is to build a reliable system. No technology is perfect. The key is to build the system, the most reliable system possible by using a portfolio of resources that all work in concert, right? So is solar cheaper than offshore wind today? Absolutely. Yes. As we get higher and higher levels of decarbonization and wind is very complementary at those higher levels, like, is that the least cost resource available that kind of meets the need of the moment and given our decarbonization pathway. So I think those are the kind of questions that the commission needs to wrestle with. And speaking for Sierra Club, you know, we think it's a very complementary, um, renewable, clean resource. The other thing I'll note related to this, kind of to put a point on the SMR question you alluded to, Matt, is Duke really put their thumb on the scale with these three scenarios. So scenario one, they repeatedly talk about how difficult or impossible essentially it is. And to try to quantify that, Duke added a 20% adder to all the capital costs of the deploy, the, what it would cost to deploy all those resources to meet that 20% goal. And so that is a huge factor in why based on how Duke has presented this information, Portfolio One seems to be so expensive because they've added this just kind of totally arbitrary 20% kicker to the overall cost. That has not been applied to technology like SMRs, which as everyone here has noted, just aren't commercially available today. So that seems a pretty arbitrary, unfair, and I don't think Duke has actually justified that. And to put in perspective just what is kind of possible, because I know one of the things Duke has repeatedly said is it's like, it's very difficult. It's not, if not impossible to actually hit the 2030 goals. Like if you look at what's happening in Texas with resource deployment, North Carolina is a different state. The resources, you know, perform differently. Wind is a much better resource there. There's a lot more land there. So it's not a complete apples to apples 
comparison, but it's worth noting that in order to get to portfolio one on the time frame, Duke says they need 9,600 megawatts of solar, 5,300 megawatts of battery, small amount of offshore, onshore wind, and then the offshore wind that Catherine was talking about. Just last year, Texas added 6,300 megawatts of wind and solar and 1,300 megawatts of batteries. By 2025, Texas is projected to add 25 gigawatts, so 25,000 megawatts of solar and 7,000 megawatts of battery. So Texas is greatly exceeding what North Carolina would have to achieve in just the next two years alone, and we have till 2030 and beyond. So I think Duke is a giant company. They have a lot of resources available. They should be able to hit this goal. And it's worth noting that they were one of the key negotiators in the law that actually created this 70% by 2030 mandate. So, you know, I find it insincere for them to claim it's not possible, given that they were one of the key people who set the goal in the first place. You know, we certainly agree that wind and solar are complementary resources, but there are a couple of things kind of cutting in opposite directions with respect to that relationship in the plan uh, and and as it relates to, to offshore wind in particular. One thing that is interesting is that if you dig into all of these variations and sensitivity analyses that they do of, you know, what happens if gas isn't available, what happens if... SMRs aren't available in this time frame, what happens if things cost more, and so forth, many, many of those alternatives default and say, well, then we need offshore wind, then the model selects offshore wind. So the fact that they seem to have abandoned the prior kind of planning commitment to begin the process of developing offshore wind seems inconsistent with the fact that it is the resource that their own models select if any of their if many of their assumptions prove to be incorrect and, and many of their assumptions are, you know, I think are questionable. On the other hand, I would say that there's a way in which they're using offshore wind to as a drag on solar because offshore wind is expensive now. And so they have this pathway one, which in which they say, okay, this pathway is really expensive. They claim that it's going to cost ratepayers a lot more money. And that is largely because it deploys offshore wind sooner than any of the other pathways. Uh, That's what accounts for that cost. And I don't know whether it's realistic to think that 1.6 gigawatts of wind can offshore wind can come on by the beginning of 2030. But if it were to be brought on, it's not going to be cheap. But they use that as an excuse to then reduce the amount of solar that they select. And there really shouldn't be any linkage between the two. They should select and deploy and procure as much solar as they possibly can interconnect because it's the least cost resource. But they lump it in with this portfolio. And if you move to their other pathways, they select solar much more slowly for no good reason, just because they've ruled out pathway one as being, as they claim, too risky and expensive. While I'm talking, though, if I can just, I just want to be sure we kind of share this thought with your listeners. You know, obviously, House Bill 951 in North Carolina was framed around reductions in carbon emissions. And Dave talked about the fact that Duke was very, very heavily involved in the development of that law. It's the first decarbonization bill passed by a Republican legislature in the country. And I was in the the middle of that process. and, And I can tell you that what the conversation was largely about in those legislative discussions was not so much carbon reduction as retirement of coal. And why is that? Because it's expensive, it's risky, it also is dirty, presents significant human health challenges. But first and, and foremost, uh, it just presents all kinds of risk to ratepayers. It's a really bad bet, particularly as you look forward, you think about additional regulations, you think about cost and supply. And I want to read, I want to read one quote from the plan. This is in chapter one on page 10, where Duke is talking about the problems of continued reliance on coal. And they say, this is a quote, these declines in supply availability and market uncertainty create future risk for coal supply assurance and ultimately increase reliability and cost risk for customers. That's what the focus really should be about uh, here is the urgent need to retire coal because of the many 
cost and reliability risks that it presents to, to ratepayers. And that's important, not just to policymakers in North Carolina, but in South Carolina as well, where they have an integrated resource plan process that requires that the risk to ratepayers be considered and drive the resource selection. So I, one thing that I can't tell is uh, from my review of the plan so far is how much they operate these coal resources, maybe Dave's figured it out, that they keep online much longer than they had previously planned. But I just think front and center, everyone's focus needs to be on retiring these expensive 50 plus year old, highly risky coal resources as quickly as we can. Yeah, I um, they don't run them very often is the answer, Steve. Some of these coal units, uh, like the Mayo unit, run less than 10% of the time. So plants and it's worth noting that these are plants that were designed as baseload operating resources, supposed to run fairly consistently. And in most cases, they're operating as intermediate resources or peakers. And that's just not how they're designed to do. They're just not very good at that. And that actually increases the wear and tear on them compared to how they historically had operated in the past. So it actually increases some of the risk because turning a coal plant up and down literally takes days. The other thing I would note is that we've been modeling Duke's system at the Sierra Club for close to a decade now. And one consistent thing we've found is we've modeled Duke's system and tried to figure out what the least cost plan forward is, is the model almost always selects to retire all the coal as quickly as you let it. If you let the model retire all the coal tomorrow, the model would select a massive amount of the coal fleet to be retired tomorrow. Now that's not practical for a whole bunch of reasons and there's no interveners that are actually advocating for that, but it is an illustrative point that reinforces what Steve is saying. That is like, we should be working to get the stuff off the grid as quickly as possible because the easiest way we can save rate payers money is to get the dirtiest, most expensive stuff off because the replacement resource is cheaper even if you assume you're having to pay for that retired resource because running a, running those coal units is so expensive. And it's worth noting, I don't know if we've said this explicitly or not, but Duke's essentially pushing back to retire the retirement dates of all the coal. Mayo is one kind of prime example, is the most expensive unit on Duke's system. It's up in Roxborough County, just north of the Triangle, for folks who are listening in that area. And it is a wildly expensive unit to run. 80, 90, $100 per megawatt hour, depending on how often it's running in any given year. So it's pretty easy to retire that, replace it with clean resources like solar and storage or some other combination, including energy efficiency, et cetera. But Duke's plan pushes that back a couple of years. The last uh, portfolio had it retiring in 2029. Now Duke's uh, proposing not to retire it until 2031 in their pathway. So, you know, I think it's, worth customers and interveners being aware of, like there is some really low hanging fruit that is available to lower the costs of any plan moving forward. And that's to push Duke to retire the stuff as quickly as it's practically possible while maintaining reliability. But I think everyone, most reasonable people would argue that we could retire the stuff a lot faster than what Duke is currently planning. You know, when we're talking about reliability in a portfolio, I think that is where you really see offshore wind make its mark. While I agree that we should be building solar as aggressively as possible, when we start thinking about, okay, well, then what does our system look like in three to five years when we are retiring that coal? You really want a diverse portfolio of options that are going to be generating at different times in different places with various weather patterns affecting that generation. I think it's really important that we do maintain that kind of portfolio aspect of our generating fleet. The 800-pound gorilla in the room that we have not addressed yet is natural gas. And we saw in the last carbon plan order nearly two gigawatts of natural gas approved for planning purposes. Portfolio 3 here advocates for, I believe, 3.7 gigawatts of new natural gas. So the question that I'll, I'll pose to the group here is, is how do you weigh that proposal in terms of 
reliability and, and cost for ratepayers, especially knowing that we may end up walking ourselves into a situation of having to retire those facilities early or the cost of then upgrading those facilities to hydrogen. So what does that look like in terms of ratepayer impacts moving forward? I would say that, first of all, I think Duke presents a false choice here that says like, sure, we can hit this number and get to the goal by 2030, but that requires the people who are most supportive of that to stomach even more gas than other scenarios. Like, and I just reject that choice. There is plenty of places where utilities are choosing clean energy to replace retiring coal. And I I just want to note that gas is not a perfect reliability resource. Thinking back to Winter Storm Elliott, the reason a bunch of us lost our power on the coldest day of the year is because a huge swath of the gas fleet failed us. And gas is particularly vulnerable to certain weather events in a cascading way, because if the gas can't be delivered, that is a problem across the entire system. And relying on more gas as a solution to that, and speaking for Sierra Club, in my opinion, is just a bad decision. There is a bunch of ways that we can actually meet our reliability needs that will be more reliable and actually more cost effective. A prime example would be we should rely on our neighbors more. And whether that's joining a formal regional transmission organization or just pooling resources, capacity resources across you know, wider level of balancing areas, either one of those is a more reliable way and it would be much more cost effective. We can rely more on, you know, demand response programs. You know, I think one of the most striking things of the overall plan is even in Duke's like aggressive carbon reduction scenario, the energy efficiency and and demand response assumptions are exactly the same. So they make no change to how we can impact the demand side in order to actually meet our goals. And we're seeing it again across the country with utilities starting to build out virtual power plants using, you know, electrification from heating, uh, you know, heat pumps, heat pump water heaters and electric vehicles as a way to kind of manage demand in those kind of key hours of the year. So, you know, I think there's, just to reiterate where I started from, I think it's a false choice. I think gas has proven to be unreliable, particularly at the times when we need it most. So a plan that says the solution to those reliability issues is actually just building more of the thing that failed us doesn't seem like a smart plan in my opinion. I I do feel the need to say, to acknowledge that when uh, our group, the Clean Power Suppliers Association, which participated heavily in last year's carbon plan proceeding, hired Brattle to do our modeling work as part of that proceeding. I guess I would say so much to my surprise, Brattle's modeling yielded a result that was pretty close to Duke's in terms of the required natural gas additions. And so we were on record having filed that and, and shown that just in terms of what our consultants determined was necessary to kind of keep the system operating in reliable fashion. We came up with a similar number and, you know, and I have to rely on them. I didn't have an ability to kind of second guess that or dispute that. I do think the load growth probably contributes to that further. And the other thing to point Catherine made earlier, I do think that the onshore wind numbers throughout this process are unrealistic based on what I know about or what I think I know about wind resource, onshore wind resources availability in the Carolinas. And when you back those out, there's a hole uh, in any of these scenarios. So I don't know what the right number is for gas, but kind of in an abundance of candor, I, I did want to say that's what our consultants came up with last time around. Well, and and I'm going to make, I'm going to make a plug here for offshore wind because we talk about needing the gas for you know these these scenarios where the weather isn't quite what we wanted where we have these this winter peak 
or where we have a winter storm. And as Dave mentioned, you know, the reliability of gas is not perfect. In some conversations that we've had recently with Dominion up in Virginia, they've done modeling that has shown um, during winter storm Elliott that had their CVAL project been online, which is 2,400 megawatts of offshore wind, just in a matter of days, they would have saved tens of millions of dollars in fuel cost. That was for natural gas. If the avant-grade Kitty Hawk project had been online, the capacity factor would have been high enough during that storm that we it would have made up for that power delta that we did not have. That offshore wind resource is a hedge. You know, right now the utility pays to hedge fuel costs. Offshore wind provides a very natural hedge. And again, I think is such an important part of that portfolio. And as we are trying to move completely away from carbon intensive resources, whether they are coal or natural gas, that is where you need offshore wind. And does the price increase in the near term? Potentially. Could it be reduced over the long term because of that hedge? Absolutely. And if all we do is build out one new carbon-free resource until another one is potentially ready, I think we just find ourselves in a somewhat similar position where we don't have that diversified portfolio that we need. So bigger picture question here, from from a cost and reliability perspective, we've heard a number of comments related to the utility putting their thumb on the scale in favor of resources that may not be most cost-effective for ratepayers. So how do we ensure moving forward that the utility is preferring technologies that are actually least cost and most reliable and ensure that the the commission is adhering to their sort of mandate in electing resources that are least cost and most reliable for ratepayers moving forward? Is there any sort of larger structural changes or things that we should be looking at or considering so that we don't continue to see these same proposals time and time again. I guess the, I'm not sure if this is completely responsive to your question, Matt, but I guess one thing that I would hope for is that we would see more attention paid by the commission to the extremely good work done by a, a wide range of interveners in these proceedings. And it was very disappointing in the last carbon plan proceeding, how much time and effort was put into that by a, uh, by many parties with the assistance of nationally recognized experts and virtually all of that input and testimony was ignored by the commission. And and, I, and frankly, I worry about whether we'll continue to have robust participation in these processes if that's how these commissions continue to respond to that input from uh, from other parties. Yeah, man, I think there's a couple of things that I would say to answer your question. One is to reinforce a point Steve made earlier is the commission needs to have a critical eye towards where Duke is putting our arbitrary caps on things. Um, solar is the most prime example now, but that could become an issue on any number of resources. And we live in a real world that understand there needs to be some limits, but just defaulting to Duke's limits and their kind of internal expertise, I think the commission has to have a little bit more skepticism and critical and push Duke to actually achieve higher levels of deployment of whatever kind of the least cost resources are. So that's one. Number two is just, you know, a critical lens to the assumptions Duke is currently making around costs. So, you know, the 20% adder to the most aggressive scenario just across the board is one particular place, but what are the cost assumptions Duke is making for small modular reactors? What are the cost assumptions Duke is making for hydrogen fuel being delivered on site to be able to burn in the gas facilities that Duke is planning to build, particularly in a world where we could have environmental regulations that are going to mandate that by some point in the future that those units are burning hydrogen only. So those are the two things. And then I think the other thing that could be helpful is just like actually going to the market and getting this data. So let's not rely on Duke's own assumptions or to be perfectly blunt, even, you know, the assumptions that other interveners can like go to the market, see what the costs are, bring those into the process. 
let the technologies compete against themselves with some sort of all source procurement process that designates what the need is for the system, not what the technology is that, that is preferred, but like, what's the capacity we need? What is the energy delivered? What is the time of delivery for that resource? And let all the technologies compete against each other. And then we can find, you know, find a truly least cost thing. And then the last thing I would say, which relates to that all sorts of procurement is let solutions on the demand side participate and compete. Technology is evolving very quickly on the demand side that allows us to actually control how much energy is being used in any given moment. So let's not focus solely on the supply side, but also look on the demand side and what are the least cost resources on that side that can help us achieve our goals. Well, so here's one additional question since we we talked about the the third portfolio, the preferred portfolio proposed by Duke advocating to extend the carbon emissions reduction compliance date to 2035. Would this proposal be legally enforceable given the statutory language in House Bill 951 that Duke was a party to negotiations around? Yeah, thanks, Matt. We argued strongly in the last proceeding that Duke does not have authority to extend the compliance date for 70% carbon reduction past 2032 unless they, the commission has selected a, a resource plan that includes offshore wind or nuclear. And during the course of executing or implementing that plan, they find that they, that additional time is needed to bring those resources online. So to do what Duke has done here to say, on the front end, advanced nuclear is not going to be available until 2035. Therefore, we're not going to comply until 2035. Uh, we don't think the law allows that. And we've spent a lot of time looking at the exact wording of the, of the legislation. The commission, frankly, punted on that issue. They didn't believe they had to decide it in the last proceeding, and they didn't decide it. Uh, now that Duke is selecting an actual preferred plan, I think the question is, is will squarely be before the North Carolina Commission, is this legal? And by the way, the Attorney General of the state agreed with us on this issue. So Steve is a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. I will leave this up to the attorneys and the commission to haggle over. But I will say, like, the language in the law is very prescriptive on this point. It, you know, it simply says that the commission cannot exceed a two-year delay, except in the event, as Steve noted, they've authorized construction of a nuclear or wind facility, and that additional time would be required due to a set of technical, legal, or logistical factors outside of the utility's control. I don't think my plain reading of that is that that none of that has happened. And then the, the other, the only other criteria is that if a delay is necessary to maintain the reliability of the existing grid. And I think nobody can reasonably argue that we're at that point yet where we need to make decisions about 2035 or 2030 today and what the reliability of the grid is going to be like eight years in the future. That's like, that's just not known. So I look forward to the commission weighing in on that decision. But, you know, I think the law is pretty clear that there has to be a set of criteria met. Well, to, to be respectful of y'all's time, uh, since we're getting close to the end of the hour, I'll, I'll wrap things up. But uh, was there any last parting thoughts that anyone from the group here wanted to, to make sure that we hit on that we have not covered yet? I guess my parting point was like, it's a pretty disappointing plan. And given that it's actually a slower plan than Duke passed prior to the IRA, and the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act, it's especially disappointing from Sierra Club's point of view. The utilities were pretty clear that they could decarbonize very fast, but they needed the support of the federal government to do that. Now they've gotten the support of the federal government and Duke seems to be you know, saying that, yeah, we're not going to do it. So yeah, my parting thought is just like, it, it was... I didn't have high expectations for this carbon plan, but the, even I was disappointed with what Duke filed, given the changes we've had in terms of money just poured into the system to support clean energy deployment and coal retirements. I was just going to say as a final thought, as we've seen some 
anti-clean energy groups weighing in, uh, congratulating Duke on this plan for saving money for ratepayers. I, I think that's an assumption that needs to be looked at very, very carefully. Because I mentioned the work that Brattle did for us in the past. Brattle concluded that a plan that moved faster and added renewables faster would save hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for ratepayers. And I think there's a lot of reason to be very skeptical about the claim that this pathway three actually saves money for ratepayers. It's being held out as doing that, but there are a lot of reasons to think that that is not so. And there's certainly a lot of risks that haven't been adequately considered. Uh, so I, I hope that that will get a lot of attention as the plan moves through the deliberations before the two commissions. And I want to thank all three of you for joining us on today's episode to provide your take on Duke's latest proposal in the carbon plan proceeding. I look forward to having each of you back to talk about your own filings and interveners' responses to the the filing from Duke in the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Overall, there seemed to be a sentiment of disappointment coming from our guest in regard to Duke's proposed carbon plan filed just a few weeks ago. We saw a plan that delayed implementation of renewables like offshore wind, placed artificial caps on solar deployment, and leaned in heavily to costly generation resources that may not be as reliable or cost-effective for ratepayers. But fortunately, the organizations we heard from today and numerous others that we didn't hear from will all have the opportunity to provide comments and submit their own plans in the proceeding currently underway at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. And this time around, interveners will have 180 days to respond to Duke's filing, as opposed to the 60 days we saw in the last carbon plan proceeding, providing a little bit more time to digest what Duke has filed and propose alternative modeling that leads to additional ratepayer savings and improved reliability. Once those alternative plans are filed, you can be sure we'll have guests join us from those respective groups to share updates on their proposals. This episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is brought to you by Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage. The program now has more than 12 governments participating here in the Triangle area, allowing homeowners from all across the region to participate and see significant savings on the cost of installation via the power of group purchasing. So if you're interested in installing solar on your home, there's never been a better time. Visit SolarizeTheTriangle.com for more information today. All right, and that's all for today's episode. Have ideas for future episodes or a burning clean energy question you want to see covered? Send me a note at mattable at energync.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider contributing or sponsoring today to help ensure we can continue to bring you great content like today's episode. Sponsorship opportunities and more can be found at energync.org forward slash the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. And episode 98 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you are listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later. <laughs>